The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibadi and X, and this is The Candid Frame. March 11th, a few weeks ago, marked the fifth anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear accident, which occurred after a 9.0 earthquake in Japan. The 15-meter tsunami which followed the quake resulted in the loss of power and the cooling system for the three nuclear reactors, which experienced core meltdowns and released huge quantities of radiation. Over 100,000 people were evacuated as a result of the largest nuclear accident since the Chernobyl accident in the former Soviet Union in 1986. Photographer Michael Forster Rothbart has been exploring the long-term impact of both disasters through the stories of the people whose communities were irreversibly changed as a result of these nuclear accidents. In his images of Chernobyl, he explores the lives of people who choose to return to their land, to their homes, despite potential long-term health concerns, while in Japan, the more recent victims of the accident make a choice as to whether or not to return to the place they know as home as the Japanese government attempts to make towns and villages habitable again. This work, as well as the impact of natural gas mining in the form of fracking here in the United States, has allowed Michael to explore the personal price that can be paid in our effort to procure energy. A hunger that can completely transform a people's relationship to the place that they call home. Well, Michael, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and have a chance to talk to you. You're doing some amazing, amazing work, but but welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to, good to talk with you. Uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is about your project in, in Chernobyl. But, but before we talk about actual the work that you've done there, can you tell me what your first memories were of about the accident and what, you know, where you were, how old were you when you first heard about it and, and what your perceptions were at the time? As far as I can recall, I guess I was 14 at the time of the Chernobyl accident. And I don't think I heard about it right away. Don't, I think maybe I didn't hear about it until a month or two later, uh, when my parents mentioned it or I saw something on the news. But I remember even then being terrified by the idea of both nuclear weapons and nuclear power that anybody could have the power to, you know, to destroy an entire region through pollution. And uh, that was before I was an environmentalist. That was before I was a photographer, obviously. I, I remember that era. I think for people like me who grew up in the 70s and 80s, there was definitely that feeling that Russia was the enemy and that there was always a danger that they could annihilate us. And it just sort of lurked in the background, that fear. And I think probably people growing up this age have fears maybe about terrorism in the same way, but it's different somehow because it's not like the good versus the evil. Or, or we don't see America as being good and Russia being evil, I should say. We sort of see many conflicting interests all over the globe. Yeah, it certainly wasn't what it may likely have been during the 60s, especially during what probably was considered the height of the Cold War with the Bay of Pigs invasion and then and the embargo and then, you know, when the um, Russia 
put the missiles in, in Cuba, where we really were came close to it. And I think that there was something probably even more palpable uh, about the threat then. But I remember, because I'm, I'm of that same generation, that an entire fear of the bombs being dropped. That was sort of always sort of a pervasive thing, I think, for, for our generation to have to contend with. I don't know. I don't know if you remember. I think I was in eighth grade when there was this TV special called The Day After. The Day After, yes. That uh, stuck with me. I, I mean, I still remember it. What is it? 30 years later. Uh, basically, it was a made-for-TV special like about what life would be like after World War III. And it wasn't necessarily pretty accurate, but I remember just like the rats and the cockroaches surviving and <laughs> everyone else being pretty much gone. And that it's crazy to think about now. Yeah, I'm glad I, I didn't see it. I had a friend who was in that film. Oh yeah, yeah, but I didn't end up seeing it, which probably was a good thing because I was I could get pretty fearful, especially as as a young kid. And watching that, I probably would have given me long standing nightmares. You just mentioned that you became a, an environmentalist. When did you develop an interest in in uh, in the environment? I actually my my first ever newspaper assignment. Uh, when I was 17 years old, uh, I was chosen by the Ann Arbor News and uh, a group of newspapers that in Michigan sponsored a competition to choose one American to join a, an international North Pole expedition. So basically, I was selected at age 17 to join this North Pole expedition. There were students from, I believe, 15 different countries, like 22 students from around the planet. And we were up in the high Arctic for a couple of months. And at that point, I had already been an outdoorsman. I, you know, I loved getting out and hiking and mountain biking and stuff like that. But I never really thought about the environmental issues that much. But being up there, I, I remember this clearly, even though it was 30 years ago. We were up there among these beautiful glacier fields in far northern Canada, uh, doing some research, uh, taking core samples from the ice and finding pollutants like CFCs and other pollutants up there that we realized had traveled halfway around the world to get there. And being with all these other students from around the world and talking about it, we realized like how global all the environmental problems were. And I think it changed, it changed my path and probably some of the others as well, that we, we actually wrote, we had this idea that at age 17 that we could actually influence change in a dramatic way. So we wrote a letter, I think, to the United Nations saying that we've come together, students from 15 different countries, to uh, say that this pollution has got to stop. So anyway, uh, that was when I was still in high school. I came back and went to college and sort of fell into being an environmental activist. And, and I really think it was that that early experience. I think that's probably true for a lot of people that you have a profound experience when you're a teenager that you don't realize it at the time, but it sort of sets the course for your life. Yeah. I think, I think that a big part of that is having an awareness that our actions have real consequences. And it's really hard to think about that when you're just thinking about yourself and your own and your own sort of little world. But then you realize as big as this earth may seem, it's really a lot smaller place than we imagine and that, you know, the choices that we make as a, as a species really impacts not just our immediate world, but the entire world, not just people, but animals, everything. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think about that now 
And then it's just a personal choice about whether you're going to change your lifestyle, change your behavior in order to decrease your impact. But what's interesting is somewhere along the lines, I, I stopped directly being an environmentalist about the same time I became a photographer, actually. And I mean, basically, I burned out of, on being uh, an activist. Uh, I mean, by the time I graduated college, I, I, I'd been an activist hardcore for maybe four or five years, and I started to burn out on it, partly because I realized I'd been spending years telling people, you know, in this strident voice, like, what exactly was wrong with the world and trying to make people change their ways. And mm -hmm. I finally realized that I was, I rarely succeeded because people don't want to be told what they're doing wrong. And I eventually discovered that through photography, I could address some of the same issues, but on a more personal level, not telling people, look, you're doing something wrong, but by saying, look, here are some of the impacts of what you're doing. Yeah. And, and, not forcing it down people's throats, but just sort of opening people's eyes. Yeah, and then a big part of that is personalizing it. I mean, the photographs really go a long way as opposed to, you know, reading something, you know, in a newspaper or in, in a magazine. Pictures put a face on something. And when you can relate it to um, whether it's a, another human being or a polar bear and people connect in, in a way that I think is, is missing uh, otherwise. And I think that your work in Chernobyl uh, is a great example of that because I think especially since, you know, it's no longer in the headlines that it is, you know, something that has, has it's been an issue for decades that your work sort of shows that it's not just this limited moment in time, this one incident that occurred so many decades ago but that it's uh, a thing that persists, especially for the people whose lives were completely changed as a result of the, uh, of the, of the accident. Yeah, I think I first became interested in Chernobyl. I mean, I've been interested in Chernobyl for a long time, but I, I got really serious about documenting it when I had a chance to spend a year in Ukraine. At that point, my wife was in graduate school, and I just sort of started exploring around the Chernobyl region and I pretty quickly realized that the way that most photojournalists document Chernobyl is, is fairly biased. I think what happens is, as, as journalists, we're guilty of sort of dropping into a situation and having preconceived notions of what we're going to find mm -hmm. and then photographing what we expect to find rather than having enough time to actually explore and discover something new. And I definitely found that in Chernobyl. I, I met photographers who came in expecting to find, you know, danger and despair. And so that's what they, they photographed. They photographed abandoned buildings, uh, you know, those people who love like urban exploration, urban uh, decay, mm -hmm. love, to, love to go to Chernobyl and photograph buildings where no one's lived for 30 years. And so abandoned buildings, children with birth defects, uh, all the stories that we see again and again about Chernobyl. And, and of course, that's part of the story, but it's only a piece of the story. And you know, frankly, people who have been living in Chernobyl nonstop for the last 25, 30 years, they don't think about the accident every day. They think about their, their everyday lives. You know, what's for dinner? Where's my son going to go to school? What, how am I going to find a job? You know, more sort of common everyday life issues. And for them, the Chernobyl issue, the radiation is a background issue. And of course, it doesn't go away, but, you know, just the way, you know, 
if you live in a city, you worry about crime or, you know, if your parents are aging, you worry about their health, but it's not forefront in their minds. Yeah. And so I think I was really lucky that I had I had a Fulbright grant, and so I was able to spend two years living in Chernobyl. And uh, actually, when I first got to Ukraine, I lived in Kiev, which is about an hour, 60 miles away from the Chernobyl region. And it was too big a culture gap to go from, you know, modern cosmopolitan Kiev to go like every day up into these little rural farming villages and try to photograph there and then at the end of the day to go home. So, you know, after a month, I realized I just had to move up there. And I ended up living in this little village of 2000 people. And I'm so glad that I did that because that's really, that's what made my project possible is I actually got to know these people. You know, I didn't just photograph them. I hung out with them. I went to church with them. I went drinking with them. And sometimes I had my camera with me. Sometimes I didn't, but ultimately what happened is I ended up making friends with these people and then photographing them. And because I was friends with them, I was able to have access to their lives in a way that you never would if you just dropped in from outside. Yeah. I think it would be helpful to, to explain um, the zones because when people think about Chernobyl, they just think about like this one amorphous city in this place. And after the accident, things have been broken down into zones based on levels of radiation uh, could you explain that and, and where you were relative to that? I think it helps to think about the Chernobyl zone as kind of a series of rings. I mean, you can compare it to our solar system with the, the sun at the center is the hottest point, and that's the Chernobyl plant. And specifically, the what we call the sarcophagus, which is an enclosure over the exploded reactor. And actually, inside the sarcophagus, it's, it's dangerous to go in there. Uh, the radiation levels are still dangerously high, but... People are surprised to know that there are still about 3,000 workers who work at the Chernobyl plant. And one of the things that they're doing now is they're building a new safe confinement uh, to enclose the sarcophagus so they can finally clean up some of that hot radioactive waste. So that's the most dangerous point. And I I visited there probably two days a month on average, uh, but it's not a place you'd want to stay. And around the Chernobyl plant is the Chernobyl exclusion zone which is approximately a thousand square miles. And that is a place where theoretically nobody lives. Uh, that's not actually true. There are still about 400 villagers, people who refuse to leave or who have snuck back in there over the years who are living in these little, mostly abandoned farming villages inside the exclusion zone. And there are also a couple thousand workers like you know security, firemen, that sort of people who live and work inside the exclusion zone. But then right outside the fence, obviously, you know, a barbed wire fence is going to stop radiation. And so they, the Soviet government defined what was safe as places where there was one millisievert of radiation, but 0.99 millisieverts, therefore, is defined as safe, right? So you're right across the fence, uh, and there are people living in villages a lot, there's been a lot of uh, depopulation from those areas, uh, mostly because of economic problems. Nobody wants to buy property or live or farm in those villages near the Chernobyl exclusion zone. But a lot of people who either felt they had no choice or felt too tied to their land to want to leave have continued to live there. And 
I mean, really, the Chernobyl radiation spread across most of the countries in Europe. And so you'll find low levels of radiation, you know, as far away as uh, Sweden or, uh, you know, Spain. The levels there are, are nominal compared to what you find right around the Chernobyl plant. So people always ask me, well, is it safe to go there? And uh, it depends on your definition of safety, really. Uh, and really, it's unfortunate, but, you know, 30 years after the Chernobyl disaster, there still has not been like thorough investigation about what the long-term effects of radiation are on people. It was really, I used to say it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to do research on radiation. Now, uh, now after Fukushima, we know it was actually a, yeah. a, twi a, a twice in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, individual researchers come in and do their research projects, but there's been no like, like international governmental studies about long-term health effects. And what do you think that is? I mean, you would think that that would be really important information uh, to have because, you know, I know that people don't imagine that it can happen again, but, you know, Fukushima happened and it proves that it's a possibility. Why do you think governments are reticent to really do the research to learn from these terrible incidents so they can have really valid information in terms of the effects of radiation, not just short term, but long term? Um, to be blunt, I'd say it's economics and politics. Uh, you know, there are, there are always competing interests. And, you know, if you find that the health effects are worse than you thought, then you're going to have to provide more health benefits to more people. And uh, frankly, the, the survivor benefits that the Ukrainian government is giving to people who are defined as Chernobyl survivors is already, you know, for the past 25 years has had a significant effect on the national economy. You know, they're they're spending, I forget the numbers, five, 10 percent of their annual budget uh, on veterans benefits. It's actually very interesting. If you look at the maps of the Chernobyl radiation, there are like these fingers of radiation that go out from the Chernobyl zone based on where the prevailing winds were blowing after the accident. Because the fire burned for 10 days before, like two weeks practically before they could put it out. And so the, all that radiation was in the atmosphere and blowing any which way. But, but if you look at the map, there's this one prominent finger of radiation that extends towards Kiev. And then mysteriously, it just kind of skips over Kiev and continues on the other side. <laughs> and I could never get any official to say anything uh, about this definitive. But certainly the people, there are people who live in Kiev who say, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to be too expensive to... Uh, give survivor benefits to everyone in Kiev. So officially there was no radiation in Kiev. Uh, but privately, of course, they all wonder, wow. like, how affected was I? So th these people, these families that you were spending time with, were they people who had evacuated initially, but that eventually returned? And what were the reasons they gave you for coming back? There are, I'd say a majority of the people who lived near the Chernobyl, in the villages near Chernobyl, did evacuate for a time, three months, six months, a year. But most people came back as quickly as they could. And I, I asked people, uh, it's one of the themes I wrote about in my book, uh, why, why did you want to stay? Why would you stay here if you're worried about the danger? And people gave a lot of different reasons. I think the most common reason I heard is, you know, this is home. You know, I, my parents lived here, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, I can't imagine living anywhere else. 
but there's certainly a difference in generations. You know, the older people were more loath to move. They preferred to stay. And there's this one uh, old woman living in the Chernobyl zone, I remember, who told me, she said, you know, I've lived... I lived the first 60 years of my life here and I've lived, I've now lived here for 80 years. You know, it would kill me to live somewhere else. I'd rather face my own local radiation than have to live in an apartment building in the city. Mm. You know, I mean, why do people, it's a question that interests me in a lot of different projects I've worked on. Why are people so attached to their land and what are the effects when you disrupt that community? Because, you know, really people are still living there and the, the ground's the same, the, the village looks the same, but if 90% of the population has left, right. then it's not really the same community. And, and, and so that's, that's inside the exclusion zone. Outside the exclusion zone, you know, maybe only 30% of the people have left, but the youth leave because they don't see a future there. They, they move to Kiev or if they can go to college, they go to college and they don't come back. If they're not someone who goes to college, they just look for jobs and the place they find jobs, you know, like, like anywhere in the world, there's a gradual movement of people away from rural areas to urban areas, but it's more, it's exasperated in the Chernobyl area and also in Fukushima because the youth don't see any future there. Other reasons people gave, uh, you know, sometimes because they actually had jobs there and didn't want to give them up because they felt afraid to move or because they had relatives nearby. I think it's hard for us to understand in this country, you know, Americans, we move so often. Every couple of years we move and that displacement, you know, disrupts our communities constantly, but we don't even notice it. It's sort of a, a low grade fever version of the illness that is Chernobyl, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a disaster happens, you know, whatever, no, it doesn't matter what kind of disaster it is, you know, uh, earthquake, tsunami, uh, war, all, all these things happen and people flee. And in most cases, people try to return if they can, as soon as they can. And, and if it's something like an earthquake, you know, you rebuild your town, but if it's a nuclear disaster, there's no, you can't, re, I mean, you can't rebuild because you can never entirely clean that place up. Yeah. When, when we talk about Fukushima, I'll, I'll tell you about what I saw there. Because in Japan, unlike in Ukraine, the government is trying very hard to clean up those communities that were polluted from the Fukushima disaster. And, but it's still an open question of whether the people will actually return or not. What kind of precautions, are, or, or if any, do these people take... Uh, with respect to living there, because as you mentioned, the groundwater is contaminated. Growing um, vegetables, fruit is problematic. But from what I've read, that doesn't stop some people from doing it anyway. Um, but nevertheless, you know, what did you observe there in terms of the choices that people make beyond simply choosing to return there? The contamination is in the groundwater. It's in the silt at the bottom of lakes and ponds. So it's entirely through, it's moved through the whole food chain at this point. So, yeah, as long as you don't drink the water or eat the food, you're fine, Um, which is not not a choice for people who are basically doing subsistence farming. Mm -hmm. My landlord, the woman I lived with, uh, mostly lived on potatoes. She grew a lot of potatoes, and that's that was the main ingredient of her diet. And uh, 
Sure. She, yeah, she had a lot more money. She probably would have continued to live there and buy food from elsewhere, but she didn't have that choice. So yeah, she just ate what she grew and tried not to worry about it. Uh, I mean, the, the Ukrainian government and also the United Nations, uh, like the World Health Organization, put out educational materials about what's not safe to eat. The main things they warn people about in contaminated areas are mushrooms and berries and also wild game because that's eating the, the other plants in the contaminated zone. So they very strongly tell people don't eat these and they've actually started putting out very detailed maps like, okay, well, if you're going to collect berries, at least don't collect them here because this is a really contaminated spot. Go a little bit further where it's less contaminated. But the villagers I met just, you know, they may have been given those maps by officials, but they mostly just ignored them because people sort of took a either realistic or pessimistic attitude about it. You know, I'm living here. This is my life. Uh, if I die early because I get cancer, that's just, this is my life. It, um, and I think sometimes it reminded me of what you read about the, or heard about the AIDS crisis in the early years of the AIDS epidemic, you know, that there was all this educational effort towards targeted towards gay men at that point about don't have unprotected sex because you'll get HIV. And all the research showed that the gay men continue to have unprotected sex and were basically fatalistic about it. You know, my, my friends are dying of AIDS. I'm going to get it eventually. And there's not much I can do. I mean, in my opinion, anyway, there, the difference between AIDS and radiation is there was, there were specific things you could do. Whereas if you're living in a contaminated zone, honestly, there's, you can increase or decrease your chances somewhat, but you can't, you can't abstain. Mm -hmm. You can't abstain from eating. So, of course, yeah, I mean, there I was living there for a couple of years. I could afford to buy imported German jam, but the locals, you know, made their own jam and ate it. And, of course, what I was doing there was trying to understand people's lives. And, you know, so, of course, if somebody I was at somebody's house and they made tea and, you know, or gave me cooked for me, I wasn't going to turn it down. I was mindful that I was probably increasing, statistically increasing my probability of getting cancer at some point later in my life. But I had, in order to do my project, I had to be willing to do that. And, and I think what's interesting, I think that willingness was actually important. I think if I had gone into someone's house and refused to eat their food, that it would have sort of put up a barrier mm -hmm. that would have been very hard to document to get people to trust me. People knew I was an outsider, but I had to act like I wasn't an outsider in order to be accepted. And how long did it did it take for you for people to get comfortable for, for with you? Because I'm sure they had witnessed other journalists come come through and, and leave, and you know, people with various agendas. And I, I can assume that these people are very protective of themselves, and probably some of the other people that live in the in this you know incredibly small community. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, well, I'll tell you, the village where I was living, Sukachi, was uh, 10 miles away from the exclusion zone. And it's, it's just off the main road there where the tourists and researchers take to go into the terminal exclusion zone. But frankly, nobody really ever stops in Sukachi. I mean, it's just a little farming village. You know, people are going, you know, adventure tourists or researchers mm -hmm. are going into the heart of the disaster 
uh, they're not going to you know dick around at the periphery. Uh, but that's basically what I was doing for a year was uh, exploring the periphery because you know that's where the human stories are. So yeah, people when I first moved to the village, people were like, "Who's this like American? What's he doing wandering around our village?" But you know, in a small town, people get to know you and. My landlord vouched for me and introduced me to her friends and her relatives. And pretty soon it, it stopped being like, who's this strange guy in our village? And it started to be like, oh, like, when are you coming to my house for tea? <laughs> you know, I've heard Peace Corps volunteers talk about the same experience where you're, you're sort of living in a fishbowl where everyone knows who you are and you may or may not know who they are. They're observing you all the time, which actually... You know, I've heard people who are, you know, teaching English as Peace Corps volunteer find that oppressive. But um, I mean, frankly, I was observing them all the time, too. That's why I was there. And so it's sort of a mutual thing. And I mean, I think the other great thing that starts to happen is people, you get to know people, they start to, they start to collaborate on the photography. They're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not that interesting, but you've got to talk to, I don't know, my priest. Or you've got to, like... This is our favorite place to go sledding. You've got to come sledding with us and take pictures of us sledding, you know, things like that. And I think, I don't know, I think there are a couple of skills that are really important as a documentary photographer beyond the obvious photographic skills. And I think perhaps the most important one is just to be a good listener. And related to that, the willingness to take time with people, just, you know, to be patient and wait around and, you know, there were days I felt like I wasted my whole day because like all I did was like wander around and talk to people and didn't make any interesting pictures. And but that was okay because I didn't, you know, when I I mean in my paid work, you know, I'm a newspaper photographer, I shoot for magazines, and you know, you gotta go somewhere and you have an hour or two, you gotta get the shot and you gotta come home and you gotta process it and get it to the editor by nine o'clock at night so it can run in the next day's paper. You know. It was so amazing to have a grant for a year and just have that pressure completely removed. You know, there was, I could just think of things I wanted to photograph. I, I usually had a list of like 50 or 100 ideas of things I wanted to photograph. And then I just, I look at it and say, okay, tomorrow I think I'm going to go down to, uh, you know, the fish ponds and see what's going on there, you know, or like I really want to get a sunset, sunrise shot from this location and go do it. But if it doesn't work out, it's cloudy. You're like, all right, well, maybe I'll try again tomorrow. So I can't speak highly enough of the Fulbright program for giving me that opportunity. But, you know, any sort of long-term grant is wonderful in that way because, I mean, I still felt like I had to come up with a product, but I could do it on sort of the natural cycle of what was happening in the village. Yeah. How, how did the project change? How did it evolve since you had the luxury of so much time there? especially with respect to the kinds of images you wanted to, to capture? Well, I went into this project with the idea that I was going to find about 15 families and just document them repeatedly throughout the year. But I was open to that plan evolving if it needed to, and of course it did. I realized eventually that 15 was too many families to really do any in-depth. So really I did about eight, ten families maybe in depth. And the other thing I realized is that I really, people were affected in very different ways from the Chernobyl accident. There were the people, the farming, farmers and, you know, 
other villagers living where I was living who had one experience of Chernobyl, but the, the nuclear power plant workers have a very different experience. And so I also started to spend some time in the city Slavutich, which is basically the city where most of the nuclear power plant workers are living. And I saw a very different side of Chernobyl with them. And I, I saw, I ended up you know, following five families that were Chernobyl power plant workers and their families and another four or five, six families in the villages. And, you know, but whenever you're somewhere for a long time and you're open to sort of opportunity and willing to change plans, if it seems like a good idea, uh, you end up with a lot more wonderful things happening than you ever expected. So partway, you know, after I started photographing these Chernobyl nuclear power plant workers, um, I got invited to create an exhibit, a photo exhibit for them. And so actually during my Fulbright year, I ended up spending the middle third of the year, essentially three or four months focusing on those Chernobyl power plant workers and it was kind of a, a crazy production schedule, actually, to start shooting basically in January for an exhibit that was supposed to open in April. Mm. So, so during the year that I was living in this farming village, actually, you know, the middle third of it, I was spending a lot of time in Slavutich. But I realized that was important for two reasons. One, because I wanted to tell that side of the story. And secondly, because, I mean, what's the point of photography anyway? Like, who are you photographing for? At some point, if you're working on a, a long-term project, you've got to ask yourself that. Because, I mean, most of us take pictures in order to show them to people, right? These Chernobyl plant workers had had, you know, had photojournalists come in and drop in on them for most of their working lives. But, you know, they come in, take pictures for a couple of days and leave. Nobody had ever done an exhibit for these workers themselves. And so what a great idea and what a great exhibit it was to actually... Like, forget about the rest of the world and what the rest of the world thinks about Chernobyl. I was, when I was work, photographing these workers, I was photographing them to show these pictures to their friends and neighbors, essentially. So we had this exhibit in their town hall, and it was really, it was a wonderful moment, uh, that opening. I remember people, like, walking around and, like, seeing their pictures of themselves and their friends and laughing about it, talking about it. And yeah, of course, then some of those pictures eventually made their way to my bigger exhibit that I showed, you know, later in New York and Chicago and Philadelphia, where different places. Some of those pictures I knew at the time that I put them in the local exhibit were never either they weren't great pictures or they they were sort of too intimate in a way. And I'll explain what I mean, that they were pictures made for the people who were in them. Those pictures never ended up in the bigger exhibit and that's fine because it was for a different purpose. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So one, one last thought is so that, so that of course, after doing an exhibit in Slavutich, I mean, all the doors were open for me. Uh, then, I mean, in the village of 2000 people, it didn't take that long for people to know, <laughs> yeah. to know about me, you know, you know, within a couple of weeks, people are like, okay, there's an American here taking pictures of us. And, but Slavutich is a city of, you know, close to 50,000 people. And so people didn't necessarily know I was there, but then once I had an exhibit there, people didn't know I was there. And then I started to get, you know, invitations to, you know, to see things. And, and the other thing is I became friends with these Chernobyl plant workers and they told me things, they told me things they wouldn't tell their bosses, you know, mm. 
in fact, some, some of them told me things that I still can't publish because they're like, you can't, you can't publish this until I retire or you can't publish this until I'm dead. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, yeah, maybe, I don't know, 20 years from now I'll have to do an update, um, and tell some of the stories that I'm, I mean, just, I mean, mostly they're not incriminating stories, although some of them are mostly they're just sort of personal stories that people felt were too personal to share publicly. And I was, you know, frankly, I'm amazed that people are willing to tell me these stories sometimes. Like, cause who am I? Like I've known you for a month. I'm an outsider, but I think in some ways there's an opportunity there. People are sitting on a story and they can't tell their friends and neighbors they can tell an outsider because I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to be around there a year or two from now, like saying, you know, gossiping, like, did you know what Nadia told me? Like when I had tea at her yeah. apartment. Yeah. The fact that you're not so close to them allows them to open up in, in ways that, you know, are very surprising. I think it's always sort of really interesting uh, thing about human behavior. It's like the, the whole relationship between uh, a patron and a bartender, right? Exactly. You know, well, a person will tell a bartender, you know, things they would never tell anybody else. Exactly. Like, do you know, uh, do you know the work of Doug Dubois? No, I don't think so. He's a photographer in Syracuse who's spent decades photographing his own family. And he has these beautiful, amazing documentary pictures of his own family. And I admire them so much because you're so close to your family that it's hard to have any objective distance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And he makes these beautiful pictures that really tell the stories of like his, like his parents as they were getting elderly and slowly, their health was slowly declining and he was documenting it. And there's a power to that. So, you know, for me as a documentary photographer, I want to get close enough to people that they know me and trust me. I, and I do photograph my own kids, of course. I have fun doing it, but I find it really hard to both be a parent and a photographer at the same time. So most of my pictures of my kids are, I guess I take two kinds of pictures of my kids. Either we go into the studio and just play around and, and do some nice studio photos, but it's sort of a separate time that we're not doing anything else. We're just taking pictures and then we go on with our life. Or, you know, I have like cell phone pictures that I just take, you know, that are snapshots, really. They're not necessarily any better than anyone else's snapshots because I'm not being a photographer, really. I'm not only 20% of my energy is focused on being a photographer at that moment. And the rest is like, okay, you know, like what's for dinner or like, don't hit your brother, or, you know, things yeah. like that. Um, so, so anyway, that's why I really admire those photographers I know who do amazing documentary work with their own families, because somehow they managed to blend those two parts of their lives together. Tell me how the experience of photographing in Chernobyl helped you when it came time to go to Japan to uh, photograph the, uh, the the impact of the Fukushima uh, power plant issue that they had f following uh, uh, the tsunami that occurred there about five years ago. First, I have to say, uh, when that disaster happened in Fukushima, my heart just, God, my heart just hurt for those people, you know, because like I'd spent a couple of years living in Chernobyl and I knew how, God, I'm tearing up now just talking about it. Um, I knew how traumatic it was going to be for those people. And I was like, those people may not realize it yet in Fukushima, but their lives are never going to be the same. You know, they were dealing with the immediate crisis of evacuation and so on. And they weren't even at that point in the first weeks thinking long term. 
but I was thinking long-term. I was thinking like, God, those people may never be able to go home and like, what's going to happen to them? Um, so I knew eventually after the Fukushima disaster, I was going to go and photograph there, but I wasn't actually interested in rushing in and covering it, you know, with all the other photojournalists because you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm interested in the long-term environmental stories, long-term human stories. And so it was actually about a year and a half after the disaster before I went to Japan for the first time. And I was really interested to see what the parallels were and what the differences were between the two disasters. I mean, in some ways they're very similar. On the surface, they seem very similar, although actually the, there are many times more radiation from Chernobyl than from Fukushima. But the differences in cultures and the differences in the government meant that there are very big differences between the two and also the, you know, the, the, the geography. So like one interesting, just one interesting comparison, for example, in Chernobyl, after the disaster, they basically just walked away from the region, you know, like they abandoned villages and they just like walked away, threw away the keys. They had no plans to ever return to these villages. Actually, after the Chernobyl disaster, for the most part, what they did in the exclusion zone was to bury these contaminated villages. They dug holes in the ground and bulldozed farmhouses into holes and then covered up the covered it up with dirt and walked away, uh, leaving the contamination underground. In Japan, partly because of who the Japanese are culturally, and partly I think because as one person said to me, you know, we're a small island, we can't afford to walk away from the Japan, Japanese from the Fukushima exclusion zone. Um, they are working really hard to decontaminate most of those villages in the exclusion zone, and the government is trying very hard to get people back to the villages where they came from. So, you know, at some point, you know, people have been living now in evacuee housing for four and a half, five years now, in some cases, and some probably some of those people will continue to live there and they'll never return. But there's definitely social pressure to return as well as economic incentives. You know, right now, the Fukushima evacuees are getting survivor benefits the same way the Chernobyl survivors do. But the Japanese government plans to cut that off. You know, as soon as they reopen a village and say, okay, it's safe to move back here, then they want to wean people from those survivor benefits. And sort of that'll be an incentive to move back as well. Is that part of the incentive of, of the cleanup is that they know the long-term economic impact of, of not doing so? I think both the yeah the economic impact of paying the survivor benefits plus the you know the economic benefit of having all these abandoned or the deficit of having all these abandoned villages you know so I mean just like in Chernobyl there's some places that are really highly contaminated where officials are loath to admit it but they basically know you know this is never going to be decontaminated this is not going to be safe to live in our lifetimes but there are other villages where people are returning. I had a grant last fall and I spent a month in uh, Fukushima working on a couple different magazine stories. Um, and one of the stories we photographed was about Naraha, which is the first town in the, the first town in the Fukushima zone that was completely evacuated and now is completely reopened. It reopened last September and I arrived about a week after it reopened and, uh, it's a construction zone, really. You know, there's still decontamination going on, 
but people have started to move back. The town had a population of roughly 7,000, if I remember correctly. And at the point when we were there, you know, only a couple hundred had moved back in. I think by now, the latest statistic I heard is about 400 people have returned. It's kind of, everyone's waiting to see, will we be able to get people to come back or not? We interviewed the mayor and photographed him. And I'll paraphrase, basically he said that he hoped to see a lot of children's smiles back in the village. And you have to understand Japanese culture, what people... People in Japan are loath to talk about problems. And so everything is sort of framed, framed in the positive. So, you know, I think what he was really saying to us is that he was afraid that people with children would not return to his town, but he was doing everything as possible to convince them to come back. But instead, he the way he said it was he can't wait to see, you know, all the smiling children back yeah. in town. And maybe people will come back. You know, when we were there, only two children only only one family with two kids had to come back to town. But, you know, the schools aren't reo- haven't reopened yet. Uh, they're planning to reopen the schools in Naraha in another year. And so maybe families with children will start to return then. We talked to uh, a business owner who said that, uh, you know, the people in their 40s, the people with children, are sort of the most hardest working generation and that they are the least likely to return because they have children and people with children aren't, weren't going to come back. But it's, it's really interesting though, as you go from like through the towns from like Hirono to Naraha to Tomioka, as you get closer and closer to the plant, it's like every time you cross the town line, things get worse and look worse. In Tomioka, which is the town just north of Naraha, they're actively decontaminating it, which means thousands of workers are basically scraping every inch of topsoil in the whole town. In, in every inhabited area in the town, they only go about, what is it, like 10 meters into the forests away from the roadsides. But, but every like developed property has the first you know inch, sometimes two inches of topsoil getting scraped and put in these enormous like square meter plastic bags, which then get piled up on the side of the road and eventually taken to a temporary dump site. And then eventually they'll be incinerated. So this, this soil is slightly radioactive. So they're cleaning it to a, it passes to a certain level. Um, it's not highly radioactive waste, but they're still incinerating it in a special closed incinerator so that there's no exhaust from the incinerator that mm-hmm. like the exhaust is recaptured. But can you imagine the amount of work it takes to like it's a Herculean task to clean a, a community like this? And some people I talked to, there's this biologist I talked to who said, you know, what's the point? Like you're gonna like clean all these rice paddies so and measure them and they're going to say, okay, it's decontaminated, but there's radiation uphill in the mountains, you know, and every time it rains, that radiation is going to wash through the streams back into the rice paddies and in a year or two or five years or 10 years, it's just going to be contaminated again. But the Japanese government's investing a lot of money to do this. And I think also Jap- the Japanese is to make broad crass generalizations, which are always inaccurate, but I'll do it anyway. Um, (laughs) Japanese culturally are people who, you know, if there's a problem, we will find a technological fix to fix it. So that's what they're trying to do. On April 16th, 
I'll be teaching a street photography workshop here in Los Angeles through the Los Angeles Center of Photography. It's a full day course in which I teach you about the core features of your camera, how to capture images on the street, how to consider light and shadow, and waiting for that telling gesture. And then it culminates with us sitting down and doing a critique of the images that have been produced by all the participants. It's a really fun day and some amazing images are made. And I hope that if you're in the Los Angeles area during that weekend, that you'll consider joining us. You can find out more and sign up by visiting the LACP website at lacphoto.org. Links will also be found on the show notes and on the website. Hope to see you there. Can I read you a short excerpt from my book? Sure. That I love reading. That's the one thing I would love to do. Because um, I feel like we, I feel like we've been talking in generalities, but I haven't. Obviously, I haven't showed you any pictures because this is a podcast, and I haven't really gone into depth about talking about any individuals. So I think I should just choose one person and tell like tell a story or anecdote. So I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from my Chernobyl book about my friend uh, Sergei Kochelev, who is the videographer for the Chernobyl plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people don't expect it, but they're you know still working at the Chernobyl plant. There are people like a videographer and gardener who works on, you know, taking care of the roses that grow in front of the Chernobyl plant. And, you know, of course there are cafeteria workers. There's a staff psychiatrist, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating place. Uh, but anyway, uh, Koshlev is this funny guy. Cause he's like, he honestly has one of the most dangerous jobs in Chernobyl. Cause when they need footage of something, he's the one who they send in to get it. But he's also so, he's like the opposite of macho. He's like, he's like the guy who like walks around his house in Minnie Mouse slippers. You know, he's just uh, like, he's just this low key guy. And so he's always embarrassed when I talk about it because he's like, I'm nobody special. And, um, and that, it's an interesting thing to a lot of people who work in Chernobyl. They sort of see it as, a responsibility to make sure this place is safe, but they don't think of themselves as being particularly special. They're just doing it either because their parents did it or just because it's an important job to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, uh, uh, one day uh, Sergey showed me some video footage that he had filmed years ago from inside the sarcophagus uh, where really the radiation is so high that he could stay in there for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then he had maxed out his dose limits. And he, even he very rarely goes in there and actually seeing his videos, what convinced me, I had been trying to think if I could talk, I knew enough people in the Chernobyl plant that I thought I could probably talk my way inside the sarcophagus where they don't let anyone. And I'm not just talking about the, like the maintained rooms, like they let journalists sometimes go into the control room, uh, the abandoned control room. But it's not that hot in there. It's supposed to like on the other side of this like lead shield where you're basically right there where the radiation took place. And like in his footage, I saw things like, you know, like nuclear fuel rods still laying on the floor like 25, 30 years after the disaster, just like laying there on the floor. Like he's stepping over these. It's like it's crazy in there. So anyway, seeing his footage would convince me that I did not want to go actually want to go in there, that there's some risks I was willing to take and some risks I wasn't. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so that's a little bit of a coach level I'll read to you. The Thursday after Sergey showed me the old video footage, 
I ride with him on the first afternoon train home from the plant. He's going to get his hair cut, and I follow along. Afterwards, his friend Sasha joins us, and we walk across the snowy central square of Slavutich to a sports bar I'd never noticed before. Bar Slavutich, hidden in a concrete bunker. It looks dingy outside, but indoors it's warm and bright. Sergei's wife, Luda, joins us following a driving lesson. Last year, the couple, the couple bought a dacha, a little college on the Dnipro River, and she wants to be able to drive out there, and she never learned to drive before now. Luda also works at the Chernobyl plant. She oversees repairs and maintenance of the sarcophagus and inspects safety systems in the structures maintained rooms. Unlike Sergei, she's never entered that debris-filled central hall. Women of childbearing age are forbidden from doing so. So Sergei orders two Chernigivsky ales, and he strains to be heard over the terrible 80s American pop music. And, and I have to say, interrupting my reading for a sec, to say, you know, um, Russians and Ukrainians love bad American pop music for some reason. It's, it's <laughs> everywhere. So, so we're in this bar, and the World Cup was going on, and there's like cheers of soccer fans, and we're listening to things like, Here I am, the one that you love. Waiting for another day. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so Sergei orders two Chernigivsky ales and he strains to be heard over the terrible American pop music. We didn't start the fire. We've been always burning since the world's been turning. And he says to me, he says, Michael, are you listening to me? He says, are you listening to me? Are you not listening to me? I said to him, Yes, I'm listening, Sergey. And we, in the background, it's like, Billy Jean is not my lover. Um, it says, I went to the dentist uh, to have my teeth inspected, and they had to extract a tooth, he said, told me. And I had them test the tooth, and they found 24 radioactive elements in my tooth. And... He just, he had this, I'm not reading now, I'm just thinking about that scene. He, like, looked at me like, you really don't understand me because you can't really imagine what it's like to be living here. Um, but then he shrugged and he said, over the tears of soccer fans, he says, Chernobyl is in us and we are in Chernobyl. He explained matter-of-factly. We were young when we came here, Luda adds with a shrug. Chernobyl is our life. And the reason I like to read that passage, besides giving me a chance to sing, is <laughs> because, because that, that line from Luda, that Chernobyl is our life. Um, and I think until you spend time somewhere like Chernobyl or Fukushima, you don't really understand that these people have, they've come terms with it. They've come to terms with the fact that this is where they're going to be the rest of their lives. And, um, they've accepted it in a way. And I think that that's, it's important for us to realize as outsiders, when we go to visit them, that they're not necessarily suffering or struggling. They've just, you know, they know people with cancer and that's just the way it's going to be. Hmm. So anyway. Well, thanks for that. The, the accident in, in Fukushima and the, and the tsunami changed a lot of people's lives and because they were forced to leave home. But I'm wondering whether the accident actually resulted in some people making changes in 
in certain aspects of their lives, how they led their lives uh, as a result of witnessing what they did? Yeah, there. I mean, you have to understand a disaster like this affects people not just physically, you know, health wise. That's what we all tend to think about first, but also emotionally and psychologically. So I think a lot of people first, you know, deal with depression or, uh, you know, sort of existential questions of like, who am I now if I can't continue to be who I was? And some people fare fairly well and figure it out and come out of that. And so I saw a lot of people, especially in Chernobyl, but also in Japan, you know, who are, you know, finding alcohol or things like that as their solution to getting through. I'll tell you about one, one wonderful woman we met um, who is a waitress at the hotel where we were staying. And uh, she actually, she hasn't moved back to, back to Naraha yet, but she wants to. She's planning to move back later this year. But she told us, she wrote this beautiful letter to us after we interviewed her. And she said basically that she was starting to struggle with depression after the disaster but she realized that she couldn't stay like kept up at home and that she had to get out and find a job and that just interact with people and be with people because it was going to be better for her to sort of try to put the disaster behind her and put a smile on her face and, and move on. But I certainly know a lot of people who had trouble moving on. You know, it's, it's interesting uh, to go back to Chernobyl for a minute. I, I ended up thinking about Vietnam veterans when I was in Chernobyl sometimes. And I'll tell you why. It's because, you know, you've probably met that kind of veteran who just talks about the war in Vietnam as if it was yesterday and sort of can't stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, even though it was decades ago, it's like still, the, it's the most important thing that ever happened to them and they're still trying to process it. And I certainly talked to a lot of people like that in Chernobyl who, who just wanted to talk about the disaster and how it affected them. And you eventually realize that those people are not the most, the healthiest people mentally because they're, they're stuck in the past. They're, it was a traumatic experience for them and they still are processing it. They still haven't managed to escape it. And actually the, the healthiest people, I think, are the people who were able to move on. And so I, I speak Russian, so it's, it was easier for me to interview people more in depth in Ukraine. Uh, I don't speak Japanese, so everything was through a translator. But I still found the same thing that... Some people are sort of stuck in the past and sort of in a victim mentality and other people are trying to reestablish themselves. And, and, and actually a fascinating thing that when, so I was working on these articles in Naraha with uh, my friend, a writer, Steve Featherstone, and we kept saying to each other, like, what's going on? The people in Japanese people have this stereotype of being taciturn and not wanting to talk about themselves. And everybody we talked to in Naraha, it seemed like, was excited and willing to, you know, talk all about themselves and divulge all their secrets. And so we were like wondering to ourselves, is it just, be are these stereotypes completely wrong? Are we just getting lucky and happy to meet the like the six extroverts, <laughs> the, the, you know, or the 20 extroverts who live in Naraha? Um, but then we went, we spent some time in the evacuee housing and many more people there who I talked to were really reticent to talk at all um, or at least to talk about their experiences. And so the theory we eventually developed is that the people who are moving back 
into the exclusion zone, the people who are returning to Naraha sort of have this pioneer mentality. They're people who, for whatever reason, are not willing to stay with the status quo and are like, I'm going to go and make the best of a bad situation and try to do what I really want to do, which is move home. And the people who are actually mostly elderly people or people with young children who are still living in evacuee housing five years later are sort of maybe more stereotypically Japanese that they're, they're going to do what the community norm is because there's, there's enormous pressure in Japan to do what is right for your community Actually, they, they think that we as Americans are incredibly immature because we're always thinking about ourselves and doing what's right for us as opposed to thinking about the community first. And so if it's right for the community to remain as an evacuee and do what your neighbor is doing and not make a fuss, then they're going to continue to do that. Um, so does that make sense? That no, the, I mean, yeah, the, pe- the people, the pe- to put it briefly, the people who are returning are the people who are less stereotypically Japanese and the people who are staying are the ones who are, you know, doing what they're told to do. Mm. But I mean, as I said before, those are broad generalizations and I could tell you a hundred stories about a hundred different people who are, you know, every, every, each story is different, yeah. obviously, because every person's different. Well, this whole idea of what, what home is, you know, is it, is it a plot of dirt? Is it the emotions and memories that you associate with, you know, a particular part of uh, part of the world that you exist in. Um, that's all playing a role in 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 a lot of the work that you're doing, and not least of which is the work that you've been doing in New York and Pennsylvania, documenting um, areas where fracking is is happening. How does the fact that um, that basically the dynamic? It's not some sort of a catastrophe that has occurred suddenly and unpredictably in, in New York and Pennsylvania. It's a direct result of, of, of techniques that are being used to derive natural gas from, from the land and, and their, their financial incentives are involved in, in, in the choices that are being made by some people and, and not others. But how does, how does that dynamic, the fact that it's not a disaster, but nevertheless is having an impact on people's lives in the place that they call home. How do you see that bearing similarities to what you've witnessed in Chernobyl and in Fukushima? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, uh, first, let me say a little bit about, I've been spending time mostly in like Susquehanna County, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, there's a, a city, a town, Dimmick, which is really the epicenter of the fracking problem. Uh, maybe epicenter is the wrong word because that makes you think of of there being a single point. Because uh, I mean, the whole thing, the whole problem with fracking is it's uh, decentralized pollution. You know, right? It's non-point source pollution. Every fracking well has the potential to create a spill or pollute the water in that specific spot, and so you have you know ten thousand potential points of of, of pollution. Um, and so everybody's dealing with their own local pollution, you know, as opposed to some, like a nuclear disaster where it's a centralized spot where it's originated from. Um, but, but anyway, in, in Dimmick, there's, a, there's this one road where I spent a lot of time, Carter Road, where basically the oil company, Cabot Oil, really screwed up and contaminated all these people's wells. 
And these people were in lawsuits for years trying to fight to get clean water brought in or get some kind of, you know, return for the, their loss. Um, and actually just finally, I mean, a lot of these families eventually settled because they couldn't bear to keep fighting this lawsuit for years and years. But the last two remaining families actually just won the lawsuit uh, last month, um, which is something I wouldn't think, I didn't think was ever going to happen. But, but anyway, what's so interesting about fracking is like, I guess like any political issue, um, it really divided the community, but here people's lives and economic benefits were really at stake. So people who were supported fracking saw fracking as basically a chance for their rural, somewhat impoverished community to finally earn some money, you know, bring some industry in. Finally, there are jobs, there's money for the landowners. Like we can finally turn this town around, you know, because all those towns in in the we call it the northern tier of Pennsylvania, the sort of up near the New York border are, you know, they've been mining towns, they've been coal towns, you know, and like for generation after generation, they've had, you know, extractive industries. And then eventually the coals petered out and the people are just left, you know, with the land. So here was another opportunity to finally to earn some money. And then the people who are opposing fracking, who are, you know, more concerned about the long-term pollution, concerned about the, you know, the, the environment or concerned about their own, you know, in a more self-interested way, concerned about their own water, see the fracking as like it's going to be another boom and bust cycle. And they're going to, you know, the companies are going to come in, pollute the land, and then they're going to walk away and we're going to be left once again with nothing. And so these communities were completely torn apart socially, politically, because it was neighbor against neighbor. It's like a civil war in some places like Dimmick because people, you know, maybe who had been friends for years or generations are suddenly on opposite sides of this political issue. And, in, you know, that's incredibly disruptive to the community as well. And that's, there, there are a lot of, I think, hidden social costs to environmental issues that for the most part don't get reported on because they're more subtle. Um, it's obvious when somebody's well is contaminated that they are suffering. And when there's a lawsuit going on, you can cover that. And there's actually like news related to it. But when one person stops talking to their neighbor and they're living side by side and they haven't spoken for five years because they're on opposite side of the issue, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you don't read about that in the front page of the times. Right. So you asked me how my work in Chernobyl informed my work in Pennsylvania. And I think, Really, I went in like looking for human stories. I mean, honestly, the environmental issues, I care about the environmental issues, but they just kind of become background to the human stories because I love I love talking to people, basically, and I love hearing their stories. And I think photography, documentary photography, has a really amazing power to tell stories that would not otherwise get heard. And I've always been a writer as much as a photographer. So it's like it's important to me not just take pictures, but record someone's story or if you, if possible, have them tell their own story and then put those words and pictures together. Um, but the other part about documentary photography is that, I mean, when I'm photographing somebody, I'm, I'm building a relationship between myself and that person. It's not just for the viewer later on. It's also for the two of us. And I think there's a power for people, people whose lives have been overlooked, ignored, who have suffered from something and 
no one ever has no one has ever paid attention. I'm their first audience, right? When I'm interviewing somebody, I mean, I'm I'm their first audience. And for people whose stories have been overlooked or ignored, I think a lot of them really value finally having somebody listen to them. And, and, and I have to think about it that way. I can't think about, you know, will this picture later get published or not? Because that takes me out of the moment. And when I'm there talking to somebody, it's just me and that person. And it's already hard enough to talk to somebody and also photograph them. So, you know, a lot of times... Sometimes I'll film an interview. Sometimes I'll just record it, record the audio because I don't want to distract from that. It's really, it's a precious moment when you're like actually talking honestly with somebody. It's like, God, it's amazingly rare in our society mm-hmm. to, to make the time to really sit down and listen to someone. And I mean, unless you're a therapist and it's your job to listen to these people, we, most of us don't take that time. It, I mean, just either that or we haven't, most of us haven't learned how to really listen deeply to somebody. And I feel like if you're good at it, sometimes it only takes 15 or 20 minutes to really connect to somebody and be able to look them in the eye and listen to them and ask probing questions. And I think there's a process of discovery there. People start saying things that maybe they didn't even realize that they thought themselves. And I feel so fortunate to be able to be part of that, to be able to make my living doing that. It's kind of, it's an amazing gift. It's like, I mean, yes, I think about aesthetics and composition and lighting and all those things that are important for photography. But if you don't have a real person at the other end of your picture, if you don't have a real relationship with them, like it's, it's just pretty, you know? Absolutely. Amen to that. Um, well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? That's like saying, who's your favorite student? <laughs> um, I mean, one person I'd recommend is Doug Dubois. I was already talking about his work yeah. and, uh, um, and he's great. And he has an exhibit opening at Aperture soon. And so he'd be a great person for you to talk to. But would he be the one person I'd recommend? Man. Sure. Why not? Okay. <laughs> I mean, God, uh, I can think of 10 people. I can think of 10 people who are deserving of the praise. You know, actually, Doug Dubois gets enough publicity as it is. So, um, <laughs> You know, here's an, here's a, okay. A different person who I recommend, um, is Matt O'Brien, who I know him because he also had a Fulbright photography grant and he published this beautiful book called, uh, No Dar Papaya, uh, about his Fulbright year. Uh, you know, he was, he spends most of his time in South America and, uh, he has these beautiful documentary photos. A lot of them actually are Polaroids, um, but they have this this sort of mix of spontaneity and connection to the people he's photographing that I really love. That's awesome. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, my website is hopelessly outdated. I guess I've been using Instagram for a month now. So you could join the other like 22 people who are looking at my Instagram (laughs) account. Um, Or, uh, 
if someone's really interested in Chernobyl, I, I would say they should look at my the book I wrote, uh, which was published two years ago by TED Books, the people who do the TED Talks. And it's called Would You Stay? And it's all about the questions we were talking about, about why do people choose to stay when the environment changes? Uh, why is it worth it to people to face the contamination that they face? And that's available on Amazon. Uh, unfortunately, the beautiful version that was on the TED Books app is no longer available um, because the TED Books app went away. It's always so interesting to spend all this effort to write a book and you think that a book is going to last for a long time, but the company that supported the TED Books app uh, stopped supporting the app. And so the app no longer exists. So it's still all the same content. It's still the same pictures in the Amazon version, but it doesn't have the graphic design and it also doesn't have the audio and video that the original book did. So that's why I think I really need to do a print book. So I'll really actually have something that will that I can like force my grandchildren to read. Yeah. Yeah. Paper is not going anywhere, folks. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank Michael. Thank you so much. It really was a pleasure to talk with you. Well, I always enjoy talking about my work. So, uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you're doing a great series here. So oh, thank I, you. I had a chance to look at a couple of your past interviews. So, uh, keep it up. Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to MC Cut CR and Animator Jim this week for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by donating any amount through our PayPal account. Your donations over the years have helped us to improve the quality of the show and played an important role in us being able to create and distribute the Candid Frame phone app and make it available for free. Thanks to David Ingraham, Jens Rode, Stephen Wolf, and Derek Dewey's for their donations to the show. It, it makes a huge difference. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS Android and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>